I um, want to be return to the uh, theme that we began last um, last week, being fit to be tied. Uh, I always uh, have a great deal of hesitation uh, at embarking on this particular theme because uh, there's nothing quite so poignant, I think, as a bad marriage. Uh, it's easy to talk about statistics, and the statistics are are horrendous, the statistics of divorce. But uh, we're, what is more horrendous is the hurt, I think, it's left behind as a result of uh, broken marriages. Uh, and it seems to me whenever we enter into a topic like this, it always uh, evokes memories of the past, divorces, and uh, the present struggle that people have. And it, it, it's difficult. But I'm convinced that uh, the scripture teaching on this, on this subject is intrinsically good. And, and I teach on it because I, I want to give you hope. I want you to realize that, uh, that there's nothing hopeless about your marriage, no matter how grim things may be right now. Because God is not hopeless. He's a great God, and it, and it doesn't matter how far gone your marriage may seem to be. God can redeem it. He can reclaim it if we do things God's way. Uh, some of you saw the article in the paper this past week, uh, the current statistics statistics on divorce seem to look a little better. There are fewer than, than 81, although there were close to 2 million divorces last year. But what's deceiving, I think, about those statistics is that the population is down, for one thing, in the United States. And secondly, a lot of people are simply not bothering to get married anymore, and so the statistics don't uh, uh, really indicate the number of, uh, of common-law-type live-in arrangements that are breaking up or what is currently coming to be called poor man's divorce desertions. And there's a great uh, deal of that going on. We need to go back to Scripture, I'm convinced, and we need to uh, understand what God is saying to us, and we need to act on this basis because I believe that God can set our homes right. And though it's often painful to, uh, to talk about this topic, it's, it's necessary. Uh, let's go back to Genesis 2. As I said last week, this is the beginning. It's the place to start. Page 3 in my Bible. <clears throat> the story uh, begins in a garden in a lush uh, forest planted somewhere in, uh, in the east, in the, the, uh, what we would call today the Middle East, in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. The point of Genesis 2, I think, is that uh, we, we are very special to God. He, he, he loves us a great deal. He wants to give us the very best. He, he wants to provide for our needs. He, he's a God who gives and gives and gives and gives. He planted this uh, very special uh, place for man, a sort of exotic uh, playground where man had everything he could, he could dream of. And yet uh, man's life was not all play and no work. He had a, a rather large assignment. I think he was to, to uh, use the garden as a pattern and from that pattern make a garden out of the entire universe. That's a pretty big job. He went out to do his work, and the thing that struck him at the very beginning was that he had no one to help him. You have this uh, 
what strikes me as a very quaint and charming story of his naming the animals, naming them with reference to him, giving them a name that would indicate the function that they would sustain to him. And, and uh, he names the animals, asserts his sovereignty over them, but there was no one who would meet his, his special needs, no one to help him with this enormous job of turning the world into a garden, no partner, no sidekick, no one that uh, would move in alongside and, and help him with this job. And God was the uh, first to observe that he needed a, a helper, and then through the process of naming man, came to realize his own need. Now, you, uh, you women should not feel denigrated by the, the term helper. Uh, most of you probably remember the uh, translation of the authorized version, a help meet, which uh, no one in our era fully understands because meat is not a word that, that's used uh, today in contemporary uh, speech. That's an Elizabethan term. It actually means equal, too. The uh, term that's translated uh, corresponding to in most of the translations today actually is a word that in in more recent Hebrew, in Mishnaic Hebrew, means equal to, someone equivalent to. So she is to be a helper who is his equal. It's also indicated, I think, uh, by the fact that chapter 2 is simply an elaboration of 126, where God says that there, he created man in his image, male and female he, he created in his image. In other words, both male and female were equally created uh, like God and in his, in his image. So there's no, no inequality. And actually the term is translated helper in most other Semitic languages is, is translated deliverer or savior. And the term is often used that way, even in the Old Testament. And Moses says in Deuteronomy 33, Where is, uh, who is like the God of Israel who rides through the clouds to our help? And that's the term that's used here for the helper. God is our deliverer, our savior, the one we need, the one that comes to our aid when we, when we have a problem. And that's precisely what the woman was intended to be. She was his associate, his partner, someone that he could share with, someone who would help him get on with this task of uh, turning the world into a garden. And man recognized that she was something special. He says in verse 23, when... When God brought the woman to him, he said, this is, this is excellent. This is totally awesome. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. There's a double and tender there. She was made out of the same stuff as man. She was taken from his side, made out of his bone and flesh. And a lot of people have commented on the significance of the fact that she's taken from his side to be his companion, not from his feet to be trodden under underfoot. She wasn't made out of a big toe. She was taken from his side and made out of the same material. Uh, but there is uh, also the suggestion that this phrase, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, is an idiom. Because throughout the rest of the Old Testament, 10 or 12 times, this term is used of a near relative. Uh, Adam looked at the animals and he said, there's really no near relative here. There's no one who's like me. But uh, the woman was. And uh, the man waxed eloquent and poetic. This uh, couplet here in verse 23 is the first 
poem in Scripture, maybe the first poem in, certainly the first poem in history. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be call, called woman, for she was taken out of man. Uh, as I indicated last week, the word woman is simply the feminized form of the, of the masculine form of the Hebrew word for man. She is female man. She is his counterpart. Uh, I, I, uh, I hope you men appreciate your wives a lot. A whole lot. And uh, that you don't take them for granted. We, we men have a tendency to become preoccupied with our uh, vocation or becoming uh, a world champion racquetball player or whatever. And, and we just don't appreciate our wives. We really don't. We need to tell them so. We need to appreciate them a lot. They're, they're very special. That's the woman that God gave to you. To achieve the task that uh, God gave you to accomplish. And we should never, ever put her down or, or, or uh, denigrate her in any way. Some of you may remember a, a few months ago, I wrote an article in the Statesman on uh, how to love your wife. And I want to quote just a section from this. I feel a little strange quoting myself, but... <clears throat> The problem, it seems to me, is that we men do not know how to love a woman. Unfortunately, we look in vain for help, and how-to books never really tell us how. It reminds me of the frustrated husband who thought he had found one source he was looking for in a, in a used bookstore entitled How to Hug. But when he got it home, he discovered he had bought one volume of Encyclopedia Britannica covering, covering the entries How to Hug. <laughs> I do think, however, if you give the matter some thought, there must be 50 ways to love your lover. Tell her frequently that you love her. It's not enough that you told her once, she needs to hear it every day. I heard a man say one time, I told her when we were married and I still haven't changed my mind. What? <laughs> That's not enough. She needs to hear it. And it's not enough just to show it. She needs to know it and you need to tell her. Never leave her or threaten to leave her. The most devastating thing we men can do to our wives is to uh, play games with them and threaten to leave, walk out. The worst thing you can do is make your wife feel insecure in your love. Don't do that. I often, in talking to couples, uh, draw a little diagram for them, and I explain that our lives are like a pie, segmented pies. And uh, a man's pie looks just like a pie with, with slices cut out of it. And each of the segments represents some sphere of activity that he's involved in. His vocation, his family, some athletic thing he's doing, political activity, whatever. If things are not going well at home, he can retreat into one of these other segments and he can get by. A woman's life is, is somewhat like that. Her life is segmented like a pie too. But the very middle, the very center of it is her relationship with her husband. And if that's not going well, nothing is going well. She hurts all over. She may you know, get into beautifying her home or her community or give herself to volunteer work, civic activities of various types. But she's never satisfied, even if she becomes racquetball champion of the world. She's never satisfied. Never. Unless she knows her husband loves her. That, 
That's why she does everything she does. That's why she washes your dirty socks and cleans house and picks up after your kids. It's because she loves you. I think women instinctually will love their husbands. Men have to be taught not only how to love, but to love their husbands. That's why the New Testament says over and over again, husbands, love your wives. Never says that to women. The older women are taught, told to teach the younger women how to love their husbands, but they're never commanded to love. They will do it if they're treated properly. It's men that need to be told that. So just, you know, all of us, I say this to myself and all of us, don't ever threaten your wife in this way by withdrawing your love or telling her you don't love her or you don't like her. It's the worst thing you can do. It's devastating. All of you, I'm sure, have seen the title of the book, Love Your Wife. You owe it to yourself. Uh, never stop courting her. Do all the little things you used to do when you were trying to win her love. The flowers, the tender sentiments, the concern for her well-being, open doors for her. Write love notes and letters to her. Don't stop running simply because you've caught the bus. <clears throat> Help around the house, especially if you have young children. Take the kids off her hands when you come home so she can fix supper in peace. It's hard to cook with a kid hanging on your leg. Get up in the middle of the night to take care of the children so she can sleep. Babysit for her so she can shop, run errands, or just relax, or have time for Bible study. One of the most difficult things for young mothers is to have any time through the day by themselves where they can spend, that they can spend in the Word. One of the most loving things we can do, men, is get up in the morning, take the kids off their hands so they have some time to themselves. It's easier, I think, for us to find time. Cooperate with her in establishing family goals and stick with the plan. Take responsibility for the discipline of the children. Never permit the children to show her disrespect or lack of love. My father would have killed me if I'd ever said anything disrespectful to my mother. I was scared out of my wits. And uh, we need to do that for our wives. I think particularly when kids uh, reach the teenagers. And they start to become disrespectful and lip off. That's where we, we men have got to move in. They just they can't do that. They can't treat their mothers that way. Give her a regular amount of money to spend on herself. Give up a personal purchase so she can have something she wants very much for the house. Your snowmobile will probably make it through another season. <laughs> Establish a family budget and make it work. Relieve your wife of stress in the area of finances. Ask forgiveness a lot. Tell her you're sorry without telling her what she did wrong or what you did right. Love is not never having to say you're sorry. Share her hobbies and recreational preferences enthusiastically. Include her in yours. Run errands with her. Be reasonably happy to go shopping with her. <laughs> never criticize her in public or ridicule her weaknesses. Brag about her good points to others. You know the problem with most guys is that we tend to we tend to brood about the bad points. Everybody has bad points. We've got them too. But we tend, we tend to reflect on what's wrong with our wives or our husbands instead of what's right. Paul says in uh, Philippians 4 that we're to think about the things that are good and honest and just and pure and right and true. In other words, think positively. Instead of brooding over the things that are wrong, think about what's right. I gave someone an assignment last night to sit down and and write down ten things that, that he appreciated about his wife and then tell her. 
And he'd start rattling them off on the phone. But the problem was he had become so preoccupied with the one thing that wasn't right that it clouded everything else and obscured his, his, his love for her. Discuss your plans with her, giving reasons for making the decisions you made. Ask her counsel frequently when you have problems or decisions to make on your job. Plan to spend time with her alone on a regular basis. Spend time each day talking to her without distractions. Carolyn used to say to me when I'd come home, the most intelligent conversation she'd had all day was with a three-year-old. She wants to talk. And I talk all day. I have about a foot of tongue hanging out every time I come home. That's the last thing I want to do is talk, but that's the time we ought to talk. Put your old clothes on and sit down on the drain board if she'll let you and talk to her. And talk around the table. Uh, That's often the time we turn on the TV or read a magazine or whatever. That's prime time to inculcate values, the right kind of Christian values in your children. Do any of you remember Judge Sarah Hughes? She's the lady who... uh, who administered the oath to uh, Lyndon Johnson shortly after uh, John Kennedy was assassinated on Air Force One. And uh, I I had the privilege of getting to meet her when I was going to school in Dallas. And I heard her speak one time on on the subject of of communication in the family. And it was her view, this was back in the 50s, the late 50s, it was her view that one of the problems... One of the things causing families to deteriorate is that uh, is that families didn't communicate. They didn't talk anymore. And you know what she said was the worst symptom of it? Television at meals. We turn that dumb thing on and we listen to it. And, you know, it's nothing but a wasteland to begin with. And we fill our time watching it and we don't talk. We don't listen to each other. We don't talk about what's going on through the day. You turn that thing off. Put your magazines down or whatever and, and talk to one another. Communicate. And then spend, a, spend some time each day uh, talking just with your wife. Plan regular trips away, with, away from the kids. Many honeymoons from time to time. Don't blow up or sulk or shift blame when she tries to make constructive suggestions or discuss problems. And most of all, don't give her the silent treatment and walk out. Remember all the special occasions in her life. Pamper her. Make a big fuss over her. Make her feel special. Happiness is being married to your best friend. Enough of that. It's too convicting. <clears throat> Let's look uh, a moment at Moses' conclusion. Goodness, I'm finished before I'm finished. <clears throat> Why do I always do this? Uh, Moses' conclusion in verses 24 and and 25 for this reason a man <coughs> pardon me <coughs> for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and they will become one flesh the man and his and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame this is the uh, biblical definition of marriage marriage is a divine institution in which god makes two permanently one you leave uh, one social unit, you men do, and, and your wife leaves another social unit, and you form a separate unit. You become a new and distinct unit in society. That's, that's marriage. Um, 
our, our Lord makes an interesting comment on this passage when he quotes it. He says, in the beginning, God made them male and female and said, and then he quotes this passage, which indicates that this is not merely Moses' conclusion. This is God's conclusion. This is God's word to us. That's what a marriage is. So if you have been married, you're married. This uh, this institution is rooted in creation before the fall. So it's intrinsically good. It's a part of the creation that God said is good. Very good. Nothing wrong with marriage. And since it's rooted in creation, uh, it really has nothing to do with whether one is a Christian or not. If you've been married in the past, if you left one set of parents and you were united with a man or a woman in marriage, you've been married. I say that because I'm involved in a counseling situation now. It's not anyone that anyone knows here. In fact, it's not even in this city. It's someone completely away, so I'm not telling tales out of school. But, but there's a marriage that's being inter- interfered with from the outside by a man who's saying that God has not joined this couple together. He's trying to seduce away the wife by telling her that God didn't join them together. That was a merely human marriage. And therefore, if they get a divorce, they're not putting us under what God has joined. They were never joined. That is, that is nonsense. My word to him is the burden of proof is on you. You're acting as though we have to prove that you're joined. But the proof rests on you. God says, if you've left mother and father and joined yourself to a man or a woman, you are married. That's marriage. God has has joined that joined you two together. Marriages are both made on earth and they're they're made in heaven. God endorses this thing. It's one of three institutions that He's established: the home, the state, and the church. And all of them are are were created in in this setting. They came out of out of the order of creation. Now what's happening? In America today, is because families are crumbling, the state is crumbling, the two are interlocked. It's just one of those hard historical facts. As you look back through history, that whenever families have been under attack and, and marital fidelity is eroding away, then the state begins to decline. That's, that's just a fact that historians have to, have to deal with. What happens is that people drift away from God. In the next generation, they, they still have biblical morality to live by, but it's just wooden and and legal and has no heart in it, and the next generation junks it. They just shuck it. That's what happened in the 50s and 60s. When that generation said, this morality does not make any sense anymore. And so today we're living in a, in a, in a morally chaotic situation where, where nothing is right and wrong except social consensus. Whatever 51% of the people think is right is right. Some of you may have seen the, the chalkboard of, on Bogus Hill at the bottom of one of the ski lefts. It says, what, whatever is left is right. It's a strange sort of morality. Whatever is, is. Right. That's what we're living in. And as a result, the state is declining. The two are interlocked. And I would say that at the beginning of this process of deterioration is a failure on the part of the church to be the church. Jesus said, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. The world's in darkness. Marriage, secular marriage counselors, social sociologists, educators, philosophers, social scientists, 
anthropologists, economists, they don't know what's going on. They don't have a clue. They don't have an answer to what's happening. We're to be light in the darkness. And neither can the world keep itself from going bad. It's becoming more and more corrupt. Jesus said, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. The church is the moral government of the, of the world. As we go, the world goes. Now, I'm not talking about church buildings and programs. I'm talking about Christians who have homes in whom Christ dwells. You know, a Christian home is not just a place where two Christians live. Now, that's very often what we do. We take the institution of marriage and we baptize it and sanctify it simply because two Christians have gotten married. But that doesn't make a Christian home Christian. A Christian home is where Christ dwells and reigns and where he's being followed and we're doing things his way. And when we do, then our homes have light in them and our homes are salt and we can arrest the spread of corruption in our, in our country. We, and we look at ourselves, and I'm not talking about merely us here gathered this morning, but the whole church across, across our country. And we seem numerically small, but our impact is way beyond the, our size. We just cannot buy into the world's lifestyle and uh, give up on our marriages and bail out because things are going badly. We, we've got to be committed to one another. We don't have any option. We as Christians are not given the option of divorce. Now, if you've been divorced in the past, it's past. It's over. It's forgiven. It's done. But if you're thinking about divorce right now, it's simply not an option for us as Christians. Now, uh, Moses' uh, conclusion here in verse 24 and uh, in verse 24 essentially contains two elements. The first is to leave mother and father. And the word means just that. Untie the apron strings. In ancient societies, it was the man who took the initiative and left, but, it, but, the, but the passage here applies to both uh, men and women. We need to break the emotional ties, the dependencies upon our our parents, and establish a new unit. In other words, don't run home to mama and papa if things aren't going well. Work it out between the two of you. Uh, marriage is where people come out of two units that are set up and they form a separate unit. That means that we do not owe obedience to our parents any longer. We owe them honor and respect and our Lord uh, endorsed that in, in Mark 7. We, we should always honor our parents and show them kindness. Never show disrespect under any circumstances, whatever. But, but we don't owe them obedience any longer. Sometimes we men have to protect our wives against our own parents. That's one of the hardest decisions that men ever have to face. They need to do it graciously, they need to be gentle, but they may have to protect their... Because you owe your primary allegiance to your wife, not your parents any longer. Moses and God say, leave and cleave. And furthermore, those of us that have children of marriageable age or children who are married need to stay out of our kids' wedding, uh, marriages. Just stay out. Don't intrude. It's not our business. Sure, we can do it better. <laughs> You look at your son, and my goodness, he looks terrible. His bones are sticking out and has a vitamin E deficiency, and you, know, and you just think he's... But he'll survive. Your husband did while you were trying to learn how to cook, and he eats, eats too well now anyway. So. <clears throat> Stay out. 
Let them struggle. Be available for counsel. We need to listen to our, our parents, certainly receive counsel from them. One of the reasons why I think each generation uh, has to learn all over again the hard lessons that the prior generation learned is because we don't listen to our parents, but don't intrude. That's their marriage. That's not yours. You work on yours and let them work on theirs. Stay out. It's the hardest thing in the world to do. But we have to do it if we love our kids. Moses says, uh, leave, mother and father. And secondly, it says cleave. The word means to cling to. Stick to. does not say you're stuck with. used in the Old Testament of our holding fast to God in Deuteronomy four times we're told to stick to God hang on to him at all costs it takes effort it takes hard work nobody lives happily ever after that happens in fairy tales not in reality everyone has their own complex set of problems and hang ups and we just have to work through them to cop out for a, some kind of easier adjustment I, is godless Spineless, too, but it's godless. We can't say it's too hard. I, I just got to get out and start over with somebody else that's easier. Well, really, what you do is trade one set of problems for another. Divorce never works very well. I rarely talk to anyone who's, who's been divorced to, who feels that the second time around is any easier or any better. They just wish they'd stuck it out with the first one. You just trade problems, that's all. No one's perfect. You're not going to find the perfect partner. Let me tell you how you get married. I remember it hit me one day how this happens. <laughs> All of us go through life forming in our mind uh, a picture of the ideal mate. With, with men, it's someone who's a cross between Bo Derrick and Betty Crocker. <laughs> With uh, you women are laughing, but with you all, it's someone who's a cross between Tom Selleck and Daddy Warbucks. You know? <laughs> and then Prince Charming comes along, and uh, you 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 project that image on that person, and you really think that's the way they are. And when we're dating, we're always on our best behavior. Nobody does anything really gross when you're going out. You just don't. And then you get married, and uh, as the saying is, the honeymoon is over. I don't know. Ours was over the second day. <laughs> I won't tell you what I did, but it was terrible. Some of you have read uh, Don Meredith's book, Becoming One. It's one of the funniest books I've ever read. It's just very well done. Not the Don Meredith who's the football player, ex-Dallas football player, but another Don Meredith. And he tells about uh, his honeymoon was over about four hours after the wedding. He was racing to the motel, and his bride was so excited. But what she didn't realize is that he was, he was trying to get there before the kickoff of the Dallas Cowboy football game. <laughs> but that's what happens, you know, and the honeymoon's over, and we look at that person, and we go, oh, is that who I married? Did I really marry that person? And all the romance goes out of your marriage, and you think... I made a mistake. I married the wrong person. No, no, you, you just married a person that you thought was different than the person you married. That's all. That's a fallen creature that you're married to. And so are you. And then you get down to the business of making your marriage go. 
There's nothing wrong with romance in a marriage. The Bible says a lot about romance. There's a great deal of it in the Old Testament. There's one whole book, the Song of Psalms, Song of Solomon. It's devoted to romance. But romance, I find, comes and goes, and mostly it just goes. <laughs> what, what lasts is commitment. Saying, this is the woman that God has given to me. And I'm going to stick it out. No matter how costly it is, no matter how much it hurts, I'm going to stick it out. I'm going to cling to that person with everything that, that I have. Boy, I am so frustrated. Let, let me just let me quit by saying this. I was going to have you look at another passage in Malachi, but I don't have time. Let me tell you what Malachi said. Hardly anybody ever reads Malachi anymore, but it's a great book. Uh, Malachi was facing the problem that, that you and I are facing, deteriorating uh, uh, marriage fidelity. People really were not... Uh, concerned about keeping their marriages together and he writes and he says listen don't don't we all have one father didn't God make a promise to him he's talking about Abraham Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel and the promise he's referring to is the so-called Abrahamic covenant when when God said to Abraham I will love you no matter what I will never separate from you. It's an unconditional promise. Theologians describe it as a monergistic promise. That is, it's God's work alone. God gave his word. And Malachi says, look, don't you realize the deal is still on? If God still loves us, even as, as unlovely as we are, he will never divorce us. He doesn't look at us and say, well, you know, you're getting kind of punchy and, and you, you just don't have what you used to have. And you don't love me the way you used to love me. And I think I'll find somebody else who loves me more. God never says that to us. doesn't make any difference how unlovely we are. He loves his people to the end. And Malachi says, how come you're being unfaithful to your wives? Now, that's the question that I was raised for all of us. When God is so faithful to us, he will not divorce us. He will not turn his back on us. How come? We think about walking out on our wives. It's not an option. As someone has said, God has not called us to love of life, but to a life of love. And it will hurt. It will cost. But we have a wonderful counselor. And we have one who, as Isaiah puts it, in our affliction is afflicted with us. And he can sustain us and he can give the resources to make our marriages work. Let's pray. Or again, we, uh, we have to say that we do not have what it takes to sustain a marriage. We don't have the commitment to it that we should. We know how selfish we are. We know how much we want our own needs met. And uh, we ask you to change us, to give us hearts of love, because giving people who understand what it means to be servants, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.